Hello everyone, this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn, Educate, Discover. On this podcast, we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about. The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide, does a certain job sound interesting to them? And if yes, how do they go about exploring it further? Now, so far on this podcast, we've covered a range of professions such as management consulting, investment banking, product management, photography, stand-up comedy, and many others. So to check out the full list, you can check out our website at learneducatediscover.com. And on today's show, we are going to be covering a profile that is fairly different from what we've covered on this show so far. Our guest on today's show is Arsalan Suleiman. And Arsalan is the acting U.S. special envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. So essentially, Arsalan works at the U.S. State Department. And the U.S. State Department is responsible for looking after the international relations of the United States. So it's sort of like the foreign ministry of other countries. And if you check out the Wikipedia page of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, it's an international organization whose mission is to be the collective voice of the Muslim world. And it works to safeguard and protect the interests of the Muslim world in the spirit of promoting international peace and harmony. So Arsalan's job is to engage with the OIC, the OIC member states and other key stakeholders on various foreign policy issues such as health, education, countering violent extremism, science and technology and so on. So today's discussion is going to be very helpful for anyone who is interested in working with the government in a diplomatic role. In terms of Arsalan's background, he has a Bachelor of Science in International Relations and National Security Studies from Georgetown University. He also has a Master of Philosophy in International Peace Studies from Trinity College Dublin, and he has a JD from Harvard Law School. And if you check out his LinkedIn profile, you'll find that he's written a number of articles on some fairly interesting topics. So he's written something on why the United States cannot agree to disagree on blasphemy laws, Another one on strategic planning for combating terrorism, a critical examination. So as you'll see, this discussion with Arsalan is really very interesting. He shares a number of great examples to explain what his role is all about. So I really hope you find today's discussion helpful. And without further ado, let's welcome Arsalan to the show. Thank you so much, Sonali. Hey, Arsalan, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for your time, especially during Ramadan. Ramadan is on right now, right? Yeah, that's right. We're in the middle of the month right now. And it is the middle of the day. So uh, are you observing Ramadan then? I am. Yes, I am fasting right now. It's no food, no water the entire day. That's right. Yeah, from dawn till sunset. Wow. So how are you feeling? I hope you're up for this. This. I am. No, I'm very excited. I, I'm up for it. Um, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I hope uh, I hope people find it interesting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, does it at all have any kind of impact on your work? Yeah, I mean, for in terms of our workday, you know, sometimes you might uh, feel your workflow disrupted because you're not eating lunch anymore and, and yeah. holding meetings that you might have at those times. But I think what's what's interesting with Ramadan is it provides a really great opportunity to do a lot of other types of engagements and meetings. Um, so throughout the month, 
many of the embassies around Washington, D.C., and also many other government departments and other uh, NGOs and civil society organizations, including interfaith organizations, they host iftar dinners. So iftar is the meal that we break our fast with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are many uh, engagements throughout the month where people will be hosting these events, these dinners, and it's a really great opportunity to to do outreach uh, to meet with you know certain communities or leaders or officials, and it's an opportunity for many of these uh, organizations to display their work to various interested groups and communities. Oh, yeah. um, I was just at an iftar last night, actually an interfaith iftar being hosted at the Adam Center, which is an Islamic community center uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Virginia, and. Yesterday was also uh, World Refugee Day, so the iftar was focused specifically on the issue of refugees. And Secretary of State John Kerry was there speaking, and also uh, Angelina Jolie Pitt, the oh, United yeah, Nations yeah. Special Envoy for on, on the refugee issue, was also there to speak on this issue. So that's a really unique event. You don't normally get the Secretary yeah. of State and <laughs> Angelina Jolie to iftars every day, but um, that's one example of the kind of events that happen. Oh, Many of the awesome. embassies also hold events, so it's a really good opportunity for, for my line of work to do a lot of meetings and relationship building activities. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like a networking opportunity, right? Like an excuse to meet other people and discuss the work. So that's great. Um, yeah, so let's get into the discussion then. And one thing which I would like to get into later in the discussion is definitely understand what even got you interested in this space, because it seems like such a far off area from my perspective. But before we get into that, why don't you just give us a little bit of an introduction and describe what you do? Sure. Um, well, so my work, as you mentioned, um, I work as the acting special envoy to this organization called the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. It's an international organization. It has 57 member states. In the same way that we have diplomatic representation to organizations like the United Nations, the Organization of American States, NATO, the African Union, ASEAN, we also have this position uh, to the OIC. Uh, the United States is not a member of this organization, uh, but we do uh, want to have diplomatic relations with it as an organization. And of course, uh, we have diplomatic relations with with the member states. And so through this position, we work on our relationship with the organization itself, particularly on various uh, political issues that are of importance to the United States and to the OIC. And we also try to create partnerships uh, in areas where we have mutual interests. So in areas like you listed, um, humanitarian assistance or health, uh, education, other areas, we try to forge partnerships uh, and work together on some of these shared areas. I see. That's interesting. So one, just one clarification. So the, the U.S. is not a member state. So basically, it's only Islamic countries that are member states. Um, right. Most of the countries that are members of this organization are Muslim majority countries. They have majority Muslim population. However, not all of the members have Muslim majority populations. There are some member states who uh, have significant Muslim populations, but they're, they don't make up a majority of the con- of the countries. So, so not all the countries are Islamic countries. Many of the countries are secular states. Uh, they mm-hmm. just happen to have either a majority or a large Muslim population. And, and there are many countries that are also observer countries, countries like Russia and Thailand, for example, are observer countries. 
Okay. Uh, but the United States is not an observer country either. We don't have any formal status with the organization, but we do have this position of, of the special envoy in order to coordinate our engagement in our diplomatic relations with them. So how would you describe your role then as the U.S. Special Envoy to the OIC? Well, it, it's it's the role of, just like any other diplomat that we have to either a country or organization, it, it's exactly that same role, with the caveat that it's a young role. So this position was created in 2007 uh, at the very end of the George W. Bush administration. Hmm. And the first envoy was uh, didn't take office until 2008 in that very last year. And President Obama appointed his special envoy, Rashad Hussein, in 2010. And I started working with him uh, later that year. And about a year and a half ago, he switched to a different job. And that's the point at which I became the acting special envoy. And we carry out, like I mentioned, the normal diplomatic function of engaging uh, with the organization, particularly in multilateral forums like the United Nations, where they're, they're quite active. Uh, and we've also tried to build up our relationship in, in other ways uh, to focus on yeah. partnerships in, in areas of common interest. Yeah. So so actually, so this is an area that I have no clue about. So if I ask questions which seem probably silly to you, <laughs> I apologize in advance, but I do want to <laughs> Not at all. This. No, there's no silly question. So uh, like, can you maybe, you know, give us examples of the kind of activities that the OIC would engage in? And then how would you come in? Sure. So... We have to remember, um, like any multilateral organization, you can think about these entities in in both how they are as an institution itself and what they do as an institution, meaning as a collective, and also just the individual parts, the member state parts. So the work that I have to engage in encompasses both, uh, meaning that we have we engage with the organization as an organization. Uh, but also we often have to work directly with the member states on the issues that we're working more broadly with the OIC on. So I'll give you an example. We work uh, on various issues, either, you know, take take the Syrian crisis, for example, the refugee crisis, the conflict in the Middle East, uh, meaning the Israeli-Palestine issue. These different issues, and there is a whole host of issues, they often come up at the United Nations where countries will be debating a resolution or other ways of the international community to try to come together to address an issue. Yeah. Uh, and when that happens, you know, we obviously have our ambassador to the United Nations and we have large numbers of State Department staff that work on these issues. Uh, but when, when there are certain issues uh, that come up, uh, oftentimes I'll also be working on those issues to engage the OIC and their member states on some of these issues. Because given the relationship that I have with the organization and given that the organization often takes or at least tries to tries to establish a collective position on behalf of all of the member states regarding certain issues. I see. Uh, we often try to do our diplomatic engagement with them as an organization itself to influence their positions on these issues and to try to get them to adjust their position uh, to be more in line with or more um, adjacent to uh, the United States position on Got certain it. issues. Got it. Okay. Would it be possible to share an example? Yeah, so one of the big issues that's being debated right now is a reaction to the United Nations uh, Secretary General's uh, plan of action on countering violent extremism. So obviously everyone is well aware that globally there are many different terrorist groups that operate, some of which use 
religion, specifically Islam, as a justification for their activities. And there are many different uh, cooperative initiatives globally that are seeking to address and combat various groups. Uh, you know, there's a grouping of, there's a counter ISIL coalition of over 60 countries that are working directly in, in many different ways to combat the ISIL terrorist organization. Mm. But more broadly, the UN has various means that, with which they seek to bring together UN member states around issues on combating terrorism and also now on combating violent extremism. And the difference between the two, combating terrorism is usually seen more as direct actions, often military or economic or other, uh, against specific terrorist organizations. Uh, in the UN context, this also comes up in terms of designating groups as terrorist organizations and implementing sanctions against particular individuals who are associated with those groups. Mm. Um, but there's a broader area of work that falls in the space of countering violent extremism, which is a way of looking at the various factors that are out there that may contribute to individuals potentially joining some of these groups. Um, and it's mm -hmm. it's a bit of a difficult space to look at because every individual who joins a terrorist group could have a different motivation for joining. You know, one person may be joining for political grievances uh, as a justification, or some other person may just be seeking adventure or, or, or something like that, uh, or there may be mental health issues at play. The, the whole kind of conception of, of countering violent extremism tries to look at some of these motivating factors or other factors that might create the environment that's conducive to terrorist groups uh, forming or being able to recruit individuals and trying to ensure that those factors are mitigated or limited in various ways. And so the UN Secretary General has devised a plan of action which tries to lay out many of these types of factors and, and ways to address them. And that's going to be coming up for input and a vote eventually uh, at the UN General Assembly, which is going to be meeting later in the fall in uh, late September. And so one of the areas that we're working right now on, on engaging the OIC and some of its member states, is to uh, ensure that they're going to be supportive of this plan of action, which we view uh, very positively and we view as a, a really important step in bringing the international community along in a positive agenda for combating this, this global threat. Uh, so that's one area where we have engaged in diplomatic discussions and conversations with, with the OIC secretariat, as well as some of its member states, to, to see what you know input that they have, whether there are certain areas of the plan of action that they uh, want to see adjustments or changes to, and how we can accommodate that as we move towards uh, the later UN meeting. Yeah. No, actually, this is very, very interesting. So going deeper into this, so as you said that right now, basically, there's a plan of action that has been determined as a way of trying to reduce the number of people who end up joining some of these extremist organizations. And now you as the US Special Envoy has to get the buy-in of the OIC. So uh, can you walk us through how you might do that? So what are the kind of discussions that one can expect you might have in such a situation? You know, are there any disagreements? So just help, help us understand what kind of, how, how this would play out. Right. So, so you know, like, like I mentioned, we have a, a number of uh, offices and individuals who work on this. Our ambassador to the UN, our ambassadors to the different countries, they all work on engaging on not just this issue, but on many issues. So I'm, I'm one of many diplomats who are, who are trying to ensure that we get 
the buy-in from the international community and specifically from the OIC. So on, on this issue, um, you know, as you mentioned, the UN Secretary General has put out this plan of action, uh, and it's available for individuals to to look at, to assess, and to analyze. And in terms of how we engage, you know, we try to have an open and frank conversation about about the details of it. To say, look, the, you know, this is why we think that this is an important issue. This is why we think that this plan of action uh, approaches this issue in the right way. It's a, it's a holistic approach. It's an approach that looks at all the different factors. It's an approach that includes issues of governance and human rights. And so we will, you know, we'll try to convey in the fullest possible way why we think this is important. And different countries will have different responses. The, you know, many people are supportive. And in fact, the OIC has indicated as an organization its support for the plan of action on more than one occasion. And, that, and that's, I think, due in part to some of our proactive engagement with them on the issue. Mm. But sometimes the problem doesn't necessarily come up, or this is a good example of how you have the difference between the organization itself and the member states. So our engagement with the organization on this issue has been positive, and they have indicated their support for it on more than one occasion through, through public statements. Yeah. But there are OIC member countries um, who still have certain reservations and so they have been raising issues to try to highlight, uh, for example, other factors that they feel might also contribute to terrorism. So they might, some of them try to emphasize issues like ongoing foreign occupations or kind of historical factors mm. um, that might, that in their view might also be important contributors to people who might seek to join these groups. And they might want to see those factors reflected more prominently in the document, um, for example. Uh, So when that happens, you know, we have to obviously have a discussion with with, with the country. We have to Mm -hmm. uh, work through what their concern is and what they would want to see changed. And if, if that's not something that, you know, we feel we agree with, then we'll, you know, we'll we'll let them know, and there'll be a process by which that input could either be taken or not. But in any event, we, you know, we would always stress our view about why the the issue is important or why the plan is is taking us in the right yeah. direction. Yeah. So generally, who are the uh, who are your counterparts that you're working with from these different countries? So the OIC itself has an ambassador based uh, in New York. Uh, they have an ambassador to the United Nations, and that's often one of our primary points of contact. Um, but they also have an ambassador to the UN based in Geneva, uh, focusing in particular on the Human Rights Council and other areas. Uh, and then they have various uh, ambassadors and officials who are based at their secretariat in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And so... They have different departments in the same way that we have different departments at the State Department. We have different bureaus that focus on regional issues or that focus broadly on political affairs or economic affairs. They have a similar structure uh, in, within their secretariat. They'll have ambassador rank individuals who are heads of maybe the political department or who are heads of the minorities affairs department. Uh, and so depending on the issue, we'll work with the relevant officials on whatever we're working on. I see. Okay. And generally, how long do these discussions and negotiations last for? <laughs> well, it can take a long time or it can take a short time. It just depends on the time frame of the issue that we're looking at. Yeah. Uh, so 
for some things, particularly things that are related to the UN, um, you know, you might have a, an action forcing date. So there's a date at which something's going to happen and you need to work on our engagement before that uh, and to try to shape uh, the views of other individuals before that. Sometimes when you're looking at more general issues, so one of the, one of the big areas that we're working with the OIC on uh, in addition to the countering violent extremism space is on issues of human rights and, and, and promoting religious tolerance. Mm. So that's an issue that you might have certain timelines for relevant UN resolutions or other events, but it's also a long-term issue. You know, it's an issue that requires change within a society uh, and it requires change uh, by government policy uh, in certain ways. And so that type of change is a much more long-term horizon. We'll engage on the issue. We'll continue to engage on the issue. We'll hope to see changes in a positive direction, but yeah. sometimes we won't get that. Um, yeah, but like what is short-term or long-term in sort of government time, if I might call it that? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I think there, there, there are different ways of looking at that. In, in, in some respect, you can look at it in terms of the the timeline of an administration, you know, an administration, presidential administrations oh, okay. come in and they might have certain goals that they want to see by the end of their administration. But I think for some of these, some of these issues, it's, it's much longer term, you know, it's something that when you're engaging on it, for example, on issues of women's rights, hmm. that's something that uh, we engage directly with the OIC on. We're trying to work with them on particular areas. I'll give you one example, like on, on combating female genital mutilation. Hmm. Uh, that's an issue where we actually are very close in position. Uh, the U.S. condemns the practice. We have a zero, zero tolerance policy on it. And the OIC also condemns the practice and has called on its member states to ban the practice. Okay. Even, even in countries that are OIC member countries that have banned the practice, there are some countries that have banned it you know, going back several decades even though they've banned it, there still is a prevalence uh, in some countries of up to 90% where uh, women and girls are subjected to this practice, even though there's a law against it. So, so this is an issue that, you know, it's a long-term issue. It's something that we're going to continue to engage with them on, but it's something where you're trying to change local and cultural practices. And so it's something that, you know, when you're working on it, you can recognize, you know, this is this might not change you know, for maybe, you know, 10, 20 years, yeah. but it's still something that's important to work on. And yeah. it's still something that, that's uh, a good that point. we yeah. prioritize. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're dealing with these practices that have been ingrained for so long, so you can't expect them to just vanish in a few months. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that, that practice in particular, the uh, female genital mutilation is something that predates Islam. It predates Christianity even. So it's, yeah. you know, some of these practices uh, that are more um, cultural or ethnically based, it will take a long time uh, to, to address. Unfortunately, yeah. So one thing which I'm very curious about is you shared a very good example of how one of the areas where you would be engaging with the OICs, for example, something is being discussed at the UN and you want to influence the OIC's position. Uh, but taking a step back, how do you identify the, the areas that you want to work with the OIC on? So as an example, whether it's women's rights or at countering terrorism etc so how do you identify those and then what is the process like so let's say you say that okay we have to do something about women's genital mutilation that this should not exist in the world so then afterwards do you first sort of work with your team in the united states in the u.s state department come up with some sort of plan and then you 
and then you then try and get the OICs buy in? How does that work? So I, I think there's there's various ways that, that comes about, but um, in part the administrations, the Secretary of State, they'll have various priorities that they want to focus on, and and sometimes that's based on what we think uh, is really important at this time in history, and sometimes it's just based on frankly events. You know, things mm-hmm. things happen. The Arab Spring movements, for example. I don't think many people predicted that from happening, but once that happened, that was something that really became the focal point for for much of the foreign policy discussions and activities, um, at least regarding those those countries involved. So, uh, in part, you want to have your clear goals, and some of these are are very longstanding U.S. foreign policy priorities. So, priorities that deal with human rights, including freedom of expression or freedom of religion or belief. Those are very longstanding pillars, you could say, of U.S. values that we include as part of our foreign policy goals. But the relative emphasis on it might shift based upon Secretary of State or based upon administration. And so I, I think the, the way that usually happens is that, is that at the beginning of the administration or as, as time goes on on the job, uh, there different priorities might come up based on what's happening in the world or based on what, what the priorities are coming out of the uh, secretary's, secretary's office or the White House. Uh, and we'll adjust accordingly. For us, a lot of it has been, it's been sort of twofold. One has been ensuring that we are having a robust policy engagement with the OIC and its member countries and its, its member publics on U.S. foreign policy generally. So one of the issues that President Obama had to confront when he was taking office was the fact that America was extremely unpopular throughout OIC member countries, you know, in the Muslim world generally, there was there was a very a big barrier in our relations, and a, a lot of that had to do with the U.S. invasion of Iraq, as well as lingering questions that people have had about U.S. foreign policy in particular regions. Um, uh, so that kind of mistrust was one area that the president really focused on trying to address, and he made a very visionary forward-leaning address in Cairo in 2009 to show that the United States was willing and engaging in a new beginning uh, with many of the Muslim-majority countries to try to say, look, we recognize that there are political differences on many issues. We want to discuss those political differences so you understand better why we take some certain positions on certain issues. But there are also a whole host of issues that we share common interests on and that we want to work together on. Mm. And so the, the work has really flowed from, from that vision of engaging on the issues that are contentious. So a lot of that deals with some of the conflicts that the U.S. has been involved in. Uh, but that also deals with issues that can become contentious, like certain right. human rights issues may be seen as contentious issues. Right. Right. And then the other side of that was was the more cooperative areas. So identifying areas where we agree that these are priority issues like addressing health concerns, polio eradication, maternal and child health, humanitarian assistance. These are all areas that everyone can agree that they're uh, important issues and, and, and they're issues that we can work together on. So we should do that. And, and so we pursue that. Right. Okay. This is very, very helpful. And I would imagine that so you you are in in this role specifically for the OIC I'm guessing there would be other similar roles in the State Department, maybe. For yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So they, we have ambassadors for basically every 
country in the world. And we also have ambassadors or representatives or envoys uh, to other international organizations. Not every international organization, but um, to many of the uh, major international organizations, we have representatives. Right. Um, right. So I guess you could pick and choose depending on the area that you're interested in. Yeah. And actually, I should also mention, we also have... Um, individuals who have particular mandates that focus on particular issues. So, for example, um, we might have a special envoy that deals specifically with climate change. Um, and, and, and that individual works on our diplomatic activities around that issue. Uh, we have someone who has a special envoy title that works on our counter-ISIL coalition. Uh, we have mm -hmm. individuals who work on combating anti-Semitism someone who works as our special representative for Muslim communities. Um, right. yeah. These are some of my colleagues, and we work together on, on various issues because there's often overlap in terms of uh, areas of focus or, or areas of activity. So, yes, no, definitely. basically is the, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the short answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and actually, I, I think what will also be helpful uh, to learn a little bit more about is that these are very complex, hairy issues, right? Uh, obviously, there, you might say that, yes, there shouldn't be any female genital mutilation, but it's not as simple as that. Otherwise, that practice would have gone long ago. So can you share examples of tough situation you've been in where you know you're you're trying to make a point the other the oic you know one of the member states is coming up with some counter viewpoint how do you sort of how do you work through that you know what, what kind of things do you do that you think have helped you in the past yeah um one of the most contentious issues that we faced that we continue to face is one of these ongoing areas you know that's going to take you know, several years, decades, what have you, to, to really see kind of long-term change, I think, is on the issue of, of freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. um, for a long time, up until from about 1999 or so until 2011, the OIC as a group was the main sponsor of a UN resolution on countering the defamation of religions. What that means is basically that resolution was citing concern about insults to religions, so insults to Islam or insults to religious figures like the prophet or other religious figures. And they were calling on governments to ban such uh, speech in order to essentially suppress right. it. Right. And that was something that we adamantly oppose for various reasons. We're very committed to promoting freedom of expression globally. So on that particular basis, we oppose the resolution, but also just fundamentally from the the way that this notion of protecting religions, we also disagree with that. We believe that human rights are for individuals, uh, and it's not you're not you're not you can't under international law protect a particular body of beliefs. So you have to protect the rights of individuals, particularly their their right to freely express themselves and also to freely practice religion. So that was a, a, an issue that, you know, was very contentious because our view was very clear and some of the OIC member states were, were very passionate about wanting to see uh, restrictions placed on that kind of speech. Mm -hmm. um, over a number of years, we engaged diplomatically with other countries to try to show them why that approach was bad, why it was uniquely responsible for uh, various government actions that would crack down on minority groups and political opposition, that it was uniquely 
used to justify really repressive laws, blasphemy laws, apostasy laws that are really problematic from a human rights perspective. Hmm. Uh, and over time, we built up uh, a pretty solid opposition to the resolution. It would still pass, but the vote count was shrinking. Uh, and it got to the point in 2011 where it was pretty close to 50-50. Uh, and so at that point, you know, we, we, we went to the OIC and we said, look, we will not agree on the issue of freedom of expression. You know, we are, are never going to agree to any restrictions on speech on these bases. But we share your concern broadly about discrimination against individuals on the basis of their religion uh, or violence against individuals on the basis of their religion. And we can work together on positive ways to address that concern in ways that don't have the negative repercussion that bans on speech do. Uh, and using that approach, we were able to forge a, a, a different resolution, a, a kind of a completely different consensus resolution that looked at positive ways that governments can address this issue. And it laid out a whole plan of action for countries to take, uh, doing, doing things like having Leaders speak out against intolerance, uh, enforcing anti-discrimination laws, mm. having government engage with members of religious uh, communities domestically, doing education campaigns, doing interfaith dialogue. All of these positive steps that you actually see in the United States uh, were included as components of this resolution. And, and it's something that was a real breakthrough in the U.N. because this was a very contentious debate in the U.N., but we were able to find a consensus way around it and I to see. resolve it. I see. Um, now, even though we did that, even though we were able to move away from that, con that very contentious, problematic approach to one that was consensus-based, the underlying difference on freedom of expression didn't go away. And, so, and, and we, we, we see that come up from time to time, uh, particularly when there's some sort of international issue that comes up. So you may remember a few years back, there was an individual who was was making a kind of a big show of burning Qurans in the U.S. Right, right. That was something that was seen as very offensive to Muslims in many parts of the world. Hmm. And there were many people from those uh, Muslim communities or from Muslim-majority countries that wanted to see the United States take some sort of legal action against that individual. I see. Uh, but this goes right back to the basic issue that we had disagreements about, which was that if an individual is trying to express his, him or herself in certain ways, you know, we're going to protect that individual's right to do so, even if we disagree with it. So even if it's distasteful, even if yeah. it's something that's yeah. seen by many people, millions of people as hateful, as, as really objectionable, legally, we're not going to prohibit that speech. Right. But there are positive ways that people can respond to that. Yeah. So whenever issues like this come up, we will always hear a lot of complaints or a lot of suggestions about things that we should do and change. Uh, and and so, so my job, uh, even though we had that kind of shift at the UN, a lot of times I have to continue to discuss and to talk about and to tout the positive uh, aspects of having the yeah. approach that we have on freedom of expression and, and, and why that's a better approach than the approach that yeah. bans speech. Yeah. So I talk about how having an open environment allows for a freer exchange of ideas. So even if someone is saying something distasteful, you will have a multiple of, of, of that individual's voices giving the opposite, showing why uh, pe you know people expressing their views, rejecting that view, or people calling for unity, or people calling for tolerance. Uh, and those, unfortunately, those views aren't often 
the ones that are highlighted in the media. Uh, but those views are there. And you see it in the United States often in response to, unfortunately, some of these provocative incidents or even in response to tragedies uh, where you'll have an individual who does something, commits an act of violence, for example, if you want to look at the Orlando context, okay. Uh, in a really hateful expression, a really hateful action, uh, a terrible terrorist, hateful crime. And there are people who want to blame that individual for his or her background or their views. And there are some people who take that view, and it's their right to think that way. But there are people who have a very different view of the situation and will say, you know, in fact, this is not a time to try to blame a religion for an action. In fact, this is the time for unity. This is the time for people to come together. This is the time for people to condemn hatred against not only LGBT individuals, but anyone on any basis of race or religion. And so I talk a lot about how our approach is one of having that open society, that open and tolerant framework, uh, allowing civil society to really do a lot of the response rather than having government adjudicated in some certain ways and having leaders speak out and other people speak out. And so that comes up all the time. You know, even though we, we made progress on the issue in the UN space, it's still some, it's still an issue where you'll have various OIC member states that still retain that original position. They still have the view that you should ban uh, certain types of expression and yeah. We'll never agree to that. We're gonna we're gonna continue to disagree on that, but it's something that you know is an important part of my work to explain why our approach, you know, we think is the more effective approach in the long term. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, and I know you described your role as as that of a diplomat, but there's a fair element of negotiations involved, right? I mean, you're almost negotiating. Yeah, there's there's always elements of negotiation in, in diplomacy. I mean. Uh, Right. The the thing which I was thinking about as you were talking through this, right, is that, yes, something has been agreed upon at the United Nations level, but there are a lot of member states that continue to hold those beliefs and this, you know, haven't really changed their thinking in any way. So across all of these different issues, even if there is an agreement, let's say, between you and the OIC, how does that translate into the actual reality? Like, do you have any any control or influence over that right so um you know there's some international organizations like the eu that can set certain elements of policy for all of its member states uh the oic on the other hand it doesn't really control particular aspects of member state policy so if we have an agreement with them on a certain issue they can't immediately translate that into legislative or regulatory change within its member countries. Each member country, you know, is still sovereign and has full control over all of that mm-hmm. in terms of the OIC. So you're absolutely right. Uh, there's different elements to it. You may have, we may, we may be able to find an agreement with the OIC uh, on a particular issue, but seeing that implemented is a, is a whole different um, ballgame. Uh, and so part of our work, you know, it's twofold. So it's, it's one is, it's getting that agreement or getting to that place. And then two, it's figuring out how we can actually pursue and promote that implementation. Um, and a lot of times that'll involve working with the OIC and, and some of its affiliated bodies. It'll also involve working directly with the member states to, to try to use the OIC's uh, position as a persuasive argument or persuasive tool to say, look, even, you know, the OIC has taken this position and your 
current laws are in conflict with even this position that that the OIC a, a body that you're a member of has taken, and that can be a way of having a conversation with a particular government about uh, why certain policies should be um, reconsidered. Right. Right. And is is that something that you as the U.S. Special Envoy would work on, or is that someone else? Yes, no, that's absolutely okay. uh, part of what I work on. I, I mean, it depends on the issue, of course. There's certain issues that other individuals and their mandates would have a much more direct competency to work on. Um, but on on some of these issues, particularly in the space, like I mentioned, on some of the religious tolerance issues, where that was that was an issue that was a really very much an OIC uh, focused issue. Uh, that's something that that I definitely work on in combination with many other colleagues in the department. People, there 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 are individuals that are very close colleagues that work in our Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and so there are individuals there, like our ambassador at large for international religious freedom, that we often work on. But also in the office within which I'm based, my role is part of the larger office, the Secretary of State's Office of Religion and Global Affairs. Hmm. And so I have a number of colleagues here that I work with. We have about 30 people in our office. I have a particular mandate for my role, but there are also three other individuals who have, they, they don't have similar roles, but they also have uh, titles of being special representatives or special envoys, and they have their own particular mandates. Um, and so we often work together on particular issues. So I'll just mention their their roles. Um, the head of our office, uh, he's our special representative for religion and global affairs. And so he works on advising the Secretary of State on issues relating to how religion might be a factor on certain issues. Uh, and the office as a whole works to better inform and better train our foreign service officers, our diplomats, and our embassies abroad on how to assess dynamics that relate to religion and how to better engage with religious actors uh, in the course of our broader diplomatic activity. Mm. Uh, we also have a special representative uh, to Muslim communities uh, who works on the Secretary's engagement with Muslim communities, and in particular on, on civil society and youth. Um, and then we also have a special uh, envoy for combating and monitoring anti-Semitism that works on that particular issue. Right. So all of these individuals, we're all part of the same office, and there are certain overlaps uh, in our mandates, and so we work together on particular issues. But it's often uh, a collaborative effort. We have to do a lot of coordination in that. Okay. Yeah. So just out of curiosity, where do you sit? I sit uh, in Washington, D.C., the, the State Department's uh, main office here. Okay. Got it. So, yeah, I, I think this is a really, really good overview of what you do. How do you see this role evolving in the future? Well, I think, uh, like I mentioned, it's a pretty young role. So there are a lot of ways that you could see it evolving. A lot of that depends on who's in office. Um, there are, you know, if you, if you look at the U S presidential election right now, the two (laughs) candidates have, the two candidates have very different views when it comes to, uh, America's place in the world and America's engagement in the world. And, and also very different views about the Muslim community broadly, particularly about Muslims, uh, not just Muslims in America or, you know, Muslim Americans, but, uh, Muslim communities abroad. And so, you know, Depending on who's in office, you could see things going in very different directions. Um, but I, I think that you know we've we've really established a very solid relationship and, and solid basis of cooperation. We've had a number of initiatives where we've really been able to uh, move the issue forward in a positive direction. And so I think the relationship is one where we we can deepen. Uh, 
deepen the relationship, expand it, and continue to work on these areas. Because, you know, these are areas that are going to be, they are issues of priority and concern. They're going to continue to be. And we really need to have more and more people, more and more governments, more and more communities that are our partners and allies on these issues. Because in today's world, everyone's interconnected and problems they don't fit neatly within borders. You know, an event in the United States, like I mentioned, the Quran burning can lead to protests uh, halfway around the world where people and pro- people end up getting killed or property gets destroyed. Yeah. So it's really important to, to have these types of relationships, to have this open dialogue, to make sure that the relationships are in place before a crisis happens, because, you know, you can't really build a relationship. If you have a relationship of trust before a crisis occurs, you can much better manage that crisis than having to start a relationship from scratch. So I I see this role as something that's going to only continue to grow in importance uh, in the long term. Yeah, and so I guess this is where my knowledge of politics is going to come up. But uh, your office is therefore not affiliated with any of the parties. Like you will continue doing what you're doing irrespective of who comes into office. That's right. Yeah, the State Department, you know, will will continue to operate no matter who comes into office, but the direction of policy will be determined by um, the administration that's in place. So the, you know, most of the individuals that work at the state department are foreign service officers or civil service officers, Mm. which means that they have career positions here. Um, So, so they will continue working regardless of who's occupying the white house or who's secretary of state. Yeah. Um, but what will what will change is the direction of right. policy. I think I just realized right now that you have a very tough job, like a very very <laughs> tough job. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I, I would like to understand some of your day to day job then. So on the typical days, what are the kind of issues that you're grappling with? Like, if I were to run into you, what would I find you doing? So a lot depends on what time of year it is. Um, <laughs> the calendar. Uh, there are a lot of different multilateral events that help to determine a little bit of the ebb and flow of work. So whether that's the UN General Assembly meeting or the Human Rights Council sessions or OIC meetings, the OIC has annual meetings of their foreign ministers. They also have periodic meetings of their heads of state that we'll attend. So there'll be certain events that we'll be building towards in in our work. And so there might be different planning activities, different meetings that'll, that'll come about for that. Um, there's also different projects that we have directly with the OIC or with OIC member countries that we'll also be working on planning and, you know, building up those initiatives. A lot of our work also, you know, we have an external diplomacy element to it, but we also have an internal diplomacy element within our own department. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we, you know, we are, we're part of one office here, the Secretary's Office of Religion and Global Affairs, but the department is organized by bureaus. Uh, You know, you have bureaus that focus either on particular regions of the world, or you have bureaus that focus on functional issues like uh, human rights or population and refugee issues or uh, international organizations. And so uh, a position like mine that deals with the OIC, which is an international organization, but also as a subject touches on a whole host of issues. And in terms of its membership, crosses multiple regions of the world, we have to do a lot of coordination with all of the bureaus that uh, are relevant. So that includes the regional bureaus, that includes these functional bureaus that work on different issues, 
That includes certain specialty offices, uh, like the Global Women's Issues Office. Um, So much of our work also entails ensuring that, you know, we have proper coordination within the building. Uh, We have proper partnerships with different bureaus uh, who may who may be funding certain activities that we're, we're trying to promote. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, day to day, you know, it, it just depends on the time of the year, whether th- I have some sort of travel coming up or if there's some other project that I'm working on Yeah. So um, coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So generally, do you have to travel a lot or are all of these meetings with people based here in the U.S.? No, there's a lot of travel involved. Okay. Um, uh, you know, it, it fluctuates depending on uh, what's going on. But um, I think on average, I'm probably out close to a week a month okay. um, abroad. Yeah. And this would be mostly to one of the OIC countries or maybe wherever OIC is headquartered. Exactly. Yeah, it's often to an OIC member country. You know, many of these meetings are hosted in different OIC member countries. So it'll often be either to their secretariat, which is based in, in Saudi Arabia, or to a different OIC member countries. Yeah. Uh, and- but there are also sometimes um, multilateral events that are, you know, in New York or Geneva or in Vienna right. um, that will also attend that are is related to the work, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's not within an OIC country. Yeah, and I'm guessing that the more important the discussion is you want to do them face-to-face as opposed to like a WebEx call. <laughs> I don't think, like, do you guys do that? How do you guys interact with each other? Like, do you guys do WebEx kind of things? No, yeah, you know, you need to have a, you need to have a bit of both. I mean, there's not much of a substitute for personal interaction, and yeah. particularly on sensitive issues. So those those conversations, just the relationship-building aspect of, of the work, you know, really require spending time with people, getting to know people, making sure they understand where you're coming from and you being able to demonstrate that you understand uh, where they're coming from. You understand their perspective uh, really in depth. Um, So that personal interaction is important for that. But we also do conference calls. We'll also do phone conversations, email, video conferences. Yeah, Um, yeah, we, we, we use all the tools we have available. Yeah. And another point which will be helpful to talk about is that since you mentioned that a lot of these issues just sort of take a lot of time to work mm-hmm. out, how is the success of someone in your role determined? Now, that's another good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, you know, in terms of our, our diplomatic work in general, I think you have to think really hard about what are the best measures of success, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not just about maintaining a relationship or building a relationship, you know, usually there's a reason why a relationship is important. Uh, and so relationships will ebb and flow, but there's also ways to measure it beyond just that. Um, you know, for example, if, if you come in as a diplomat into a job where for reasons that are completely beyond your control, we are having a poor relationship with that particular country or that particular organization, um, you can't measure success just by looking at you know, why that relationship went up or down. You had to look at particular initiatives or ways that you can um, react to the situation that you're presented with uh, and, 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 and bring that into an, a place that's advantageous for our policy goals. And so, so for me in this job, I think a lot of it's related to to what extent we've been able to bring the relationship on a, on a more solid footing because this position is so young helping to institutionalize our engagement with the OIC within the building and helping to build partnerships in key areas. Those are all areas that I would look at as, as whether we've been successful or not. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that that's not easy to quantify, right? Plus, I I don't know yeah. how would someone. You can't necessarily quantify it. It's it's yeah. it's much more looking at the quality of the work and the quality of of the output. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, in your opinion, what do you think are the most interesting aspects of this job? Well, I, I've it's been really it's been you know I've had a really wonderful time in the job. I started off my career as a lawyer. So I went. You mentioned I went to law school. After law school, I was I was working as a lawyer. I clerked for a judge, and I was at a law firm for a couple of years. So so this type of work particularly in comparison to law firm work, um, I think is really fascinating. I mean, I, I, I didn't mention this before, but kind of starting basically in high school, I was very interested in in, in getting involved in, in foreign policy issues and in politics. And one of my goals kind of through, throughout college was to eventually have a career uh, in either international law or in, in foreign policy issues. And I was really lucky to get the opportunity to come into this job and to work in a place where I'm I'm both working on really important foreign policy issues, um, but I'm also able to use my my legal background on issues that relate to international law and international human rights. Um, so there are so many parts of this job that I think are really fascinating and wonderful. You know, the actual engagement with individuals, the actual travel and meeting with communities and, and and speaking with them and representing the United States, you know, all of these are really, really valuable and rewarding uh, aspects of the job. And that interest in high school to have some career in politics, what sparked that interest? So it was actually my involvement in uh, in high school debate. Um, I see. My, my my parents are doctors, and I going into high school and and through at least part of it, I I thought that I wanted to be a surgeon like my dad. My dad's a surgeon, so mm-hmm. I was really interested in you know potentially going into medicine, maybe being an orthopedic surgeon or something. But after my dreams of being a basketball player were crushed <laughs> by not not being uh, good enough to make my high school basketball team, I joined uh, the debate team and. Okay became really uh, involved in, in debate throughout my, my high school career. And the particular type of debate that I was involved in is called policy debate. And there's usually one topic throughout the entire year that students research and devise different policies that they're debating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a couple of the topics that I had done that I was debating uh, while in high school were relating to foreign policy. And it just got me very interested in public service, in politics, in foreign policy. And so starting from that point, it was kind of, it shifted my my mindset to to one that was more focused on law and politics and foreign policy than on yeah. Actually, that's a, that's a great point because um, as you were talking, you know, you're, you're working on such a huge variety of issues and you're working in a role where more often than not, the party on the other side is not going to agree with you. So you have to have very solid arguments in place. So how do you how do you learn about all of these different issues in so much depth and keep up with all these developments? Did you just read a lot? Like what do you do? You know, we definitely have to read a lot. Um, you know, I have, you know, really excellent colleagues that help with um, providing briefing papers and, you know, other background information that helps helps us learn about the issues more in depth. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, just being well-versed on, on the issues and, and doing your own research and reading. 
And yeah, is it I just think, online? Uh, like, do you just also having the academic background helps? Um, mm-hmm. You know, so in undergrad, I, I studied international politics. Um, so that that that's a helpful that's a helpful introduction to a lot of the different areas that we work on. Right. I did a master's in international peace studies, so that was also relevant to some of the work. You mentioned some of the articles I've written. So those different areas, subject matter areas, some of those areas have been uh, relevant to the work that I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those, you know, help to build that that background of, of knowledge and exposure that, you know, makes it a little bit more easy to engage on, on these issues and, yeah. and to keep up to date on the issues as well. Yeah. And are there any aspects of this job that you just do not like? Yes, I can, <laughs> I can talk uh, for another hour about that. <laughs> Um, well, I'm part of a organization, the State Department, which has, you know, literally approximately, you know, I forget the exact number, but we have, I think, over 60,000 total employees in the department, if you include all of our uh, officials that are both in D.C. and abroad. And it's a huge bureaucracy. Hmm. And w- with any huge bureaucracy, there are challenges in working and in getting things done. And I think that's the that's one of the hardest parts, I think, in this position, particularly for someone who's coming from outside, someone who, who doesn't have that exposure, isn't isn't part of or doesn't have their career path within the department, is learning how to be effective in that environment. Um, I mentioned earlier that you know we have our external diplomacy and our internal diplomacy. Sometimes the internal diplomacy is the most challenging and the most important. Because you can't get certain things done without having the buy-in and the agreement of other people in the department that work on those issues as well. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's I think, probably the most challenging part of, of the job is to really understand how the bureaucracy works, deal with the massive inefficiencies that are intrinsic to it, but, but do that in a way that can, can still allow you to be effective and functioning in your position so actually if you take any past project that you might have worked on in this role what percentage of time approximately would you allocate to sort of dealing with this internal bureaucracy yeah so um i won't i won't specifically name the particular initiative Mm -hmm. but um you know we're still working on it but there's there's something that we're working on that you know we're hoping to have an event related to it next month um, abroad. But it's something that conceptually as an idea, we were talking with various offices about it, um, you know, over almost a year ago. And we had been working to get the buy-in, we were working to get the funding and all of the, you know, aspects of it lined up. But it took basically a year to get to the point where we're ready to move on it now. Um, (laughs) So that's just one example (laughs) of of some of the time that it takes. Um, So yeah, it can, you know, it can be, it can be frustrating, but uh, you know, I always remind myself that it's, you know, I got to focus on the, um, you know, the goal, right? The, 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 The substantive goal, which is a really positive, important goal to work towards. Yeah want to keep working towards that and just deal with things as they come yeah so actually let's say someone comes up to you and says hey arslan you know i I heard your interview and it's amazing what you're doing but i'm not sure if i should work with the government you know why don't i just join some organization some private organization which will move much faster what would you say to that 
Yeah, that's a really great point and a really great observation, and it's absolutely true. Um, you know, the government has a particular role to play, and we do certain things in our role as government. But the private sector, businesses, civil society, NGOs, um, they have an extremely important role to play, and they are often some of the most effective organizations uh, to address particular issues. You know, a lot of the issues that we talked about, whether it's human rights issues, freedom of expression, female genital mutilation, all these things, um, government is just one actor amongst many that's relevant to ultimately effectively dealing with some of these challenges. Mm. Um, so, you know, government is is often not not the most uh, efficient or effective or persuasive actor on these issues. Uh, sometimes it's the community, sometimes it's religious leaders, sometimes it's businesses. Uh, so, absolutely, if you you know, this is not the only type of career or a place of employment that you can work on foreign policy issues. If you have a passion, you can make a really big impact uh, as a citizen, as a member of other organizations, or or even as an entrepreneur. Um, you know, when uh, we we talk about violent extremism and, and dealing with issues of instability or countries where like in Tunisia with the Arab Spring, where you have an individual who was so frustrated with the lack of economic opportunity and, and bureaucracy and corruption that he literally immolated himself and sparked a revolution, you know, that just highlights the importance of people who are entrepreneurs, people who are working in the business sector, creating opportunities and jobs for people. Um, so I would absolutely uh, commend to anyone who's interested in in issues to think broadly about how they can impact those issues because oftentimes um, working outside of government can be much more effective than working inside of government. But what are the advantages of working with the government? There, there must be pros and cons, right? Yeah, well, obviously there are certain government policies that only government can change and, and, and do, right? So whether it's you know military action or uh, particular right. relationships that we have with countries or, or, or certain policies and positions that we take or foreign assistance that we give, there are certain there are certain things that that government does and only government can do. And if if those are the issues that you really are interested or care about, then you know I think you should think very seriously about a government career. But there are other places outside of government as well that can that can also touch on some of the different areas. Yeah. All right, so I just have a few more questions and I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm stretching you on the day that you're fasting. So I'm going to try and no keep worries, it as no short as possible. So if you can just briefly talk about the career path or the career progression in this role. Sure. So, um, well, let, let me just speak broadly a little bit. So there are many ways of coming into the Department of State. So anyone who's interested in in diplomatic work or the work of the State Department, um, you know, we have a kind of the, the primary pathway in is through the foreign service. And there's a foreign service exam that you can take to apply to become part of the foreign service. But there are also civil service jobs, uh, jobs that don't require you to commit to a foreign service career, but jobs that you can apply and that are posted on usajobs.com that you know are directly part of our broader diplomatic work, but they're just not necessarily foreign service jobs. And there are also other internship programs that people can take as students um, to to come in. There's a Pathways internship program and a student internship program. And there are also professional fellowships. Um, and this relates to my career path. But there are professional fellowships that allow people from different backgrounds, mid-career individuals, people who might have a science and technology background, 
who can come into the department at, at a different level of their career. So my particular career path, um, I, as I mentioned, was a lawyer. I was practicing law in New York. And one of the individuals that I had a good kind of a personal and professional relationship with the individual that I had mentioned earlier that uh, President Obama had named his mm-hmm. special envoy to the OIC, Rashad Hussein, he was appointed to his job in, in early 2010. And when he was appointed, he was looking for people to bring on to his staff. Uh, and so he asked me to come on into his office as his deputy. Uh, and so I did that, and I ended up joining the department in late in 2010. But I did that through a program called Franklin Fellows Program. So that's a program that brings in individuals on one-year fellowships or up to one-year fellowships. And they're usually kind of mid-career individuals uh, who are who bring a certain uh, background um, and can come to the department in particular roles. So that's how I came in. And once I got into the department um, and was in that fellowship role after my year expired, I was able to stay on in a role and, and get kind of a more full-time employee status at the department. Um, but that was my way in. It was, it was by, you know, having relationships or having a network and essentially being lucky in that one of the people <laughs> in my network was appointed to this really important job and wanted to bring me onto his staff. Yeah. Uh, and he did that. And then being interested in, in wanting to stay on in the department and, and continue the work and, and being able to do that um, and in this role itself so you, i mean right now you're the, you're the u.s special envoy to oic then after that i guess you can move to other areas of the state department i mean that's how it goes well so i'm actually right now i'm i'm a i'm a political appointee hmm. so that means that i serve at the pleasure of the president um, and that means that when this president's term expires in january 2017 so does my appointment so I, I actually um, am in a, in a bit of a you know potential <laughs> job change situation, <laughs> depending on um, what happens with the election and whether yeah. the next administration would want to keep me on uh, in a I certain see. capacity or not. But yeah, I mean, for all intents and purposes, my job, uh, at least my time at the State Department, will end in January 2017, mm-hmm. unless there's some sort of new job offer that comes up at that point or after that point. I see. And otherwise, yeah. if people are interested in, in sort of joining the State Department, because I'm, I'm guessing in a fellowship, there are very few spots, right? There are probably one or two. I, I, I don't know, actually, but it's probably not many. So do you just apply on the website for a job? Yeah. So there's a uh, website called careers.state.gov okay. where you can look at the various career tracks and trajectories. And so some of that will include further information on the, on the foreign service that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. They also have specific information on, on civil service jobs that are available. And, and you can see most of those postings on usajobs.com. Mm-hmm. It, there's further information on the internship programs, which you know applies to individuals who are currently in school. Um, but the fellowships, you know, it's worth checking out if, if people are in a in a kind of a mid or senior level of their career, because there are different fellowships uh, that might be relevant to different individuals. Uh, some of the fellowships, I don't know if they uh, are have a kind of a cap. The Franklin Fellows Program is actually a fairly flexible program in that if there's an office at the department that has a need for an individual to come in. Um, they might be able to come in on the Franklin Fellowship because that particular program, it doesn't have a dedicated pool of funds to fund it. 
most of the people who come on the program are either funded by um, an outside entity, like you know, if someone's coming from an academic institution, they might get some funding by their academic institution to come in the fellowship. Or some people actually do it unfunded. So that, that program is actually an unfunded program. So people have to bring their own support uh, to be a part of it. I see. But there are other programs. Uh, there's like a, um, a program called the, the AAA, uh, AAAS Science and Technology Fellowship Program for individuals who have PhDs or doctoral level degrees uh, in science or engineering. There's a Jefferson Science Fellows Program also for scientists and engineers. So there, there are different, yeah, there are different fellowship have, programs that I think yeah. would be relevant to people with different backgrounds. Well, this, this is great. So if you were to replace yourself as the U.S. Special Envoy to OIC, what five qualities or so would you look for in that candidate? Well, I think you need someone that is very culturally adept. So... What I mean by that is someone who uh, has a sophisticated understanding of different cultures and is able to engage with individuals on that basis with that kind of nuanced understanding. I think that's important. I think it's also important to have someone that um, is seen as coming from or a member of or, uh, or very familiar with the Muslim American community. So this particular role, the OIC Envoy role, um, you know, is, is to an organization that's made up primarily of Muslim-majority countries right. and, and communities. Right. So given that, uh, I, I do think it's, it's relevant and important for an individual in that job to share that background because so much of this job is trying to overcome uh, misunderstandings and stereotypes and, and overcome right. cultural barriers. So yeah. when someone... Um, you know, in this job or in any diplomatic job, working with Muslim-majority countries or communities has that background of being both American and Muslim. I think that that helps immensely in the job. Mm. Um, I think, you know, having language skills is important. Um, you know, OIC membership spans much of the globe, so you can't know every single language spoken in OIC countries, but having um, some uh, language skills, uh, I think, is, is relevant. Also, can you speak um, in Urdu, I guess? Yeah, I, I know Urdu. I studied Arabic in college. Um, okay. So those those were both very helpful okay. languages to know uh, for me in this job. Um, I think being able to, you know, as, as I mentioned, that the bureaucratic environment that, you know, anyone right. working at the State Department has to adjust to, I think being collegial and being yeah. someone who um, can adjust to different situations, be, have strategic flexibility in their work and how they try to uh, achieve goals is also very important for this job um, because you know there's no straight path to achieving any of the goals that you might have in this job. You have to be nimble. You have to try to work with different uh, individuals and partner in different ways. And I think... Um, I think it's also important just to be uh, be able and willing to to do a lot of travel. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be difficult for family life uh, being on the road so much. So, um, but one of the main main aspects of this job is to is to do the actual engagement. Um, 
And so I think it's important to to also take that into account, um, whether someone's going to be able to do a lot of the work, because it can be strenuous, it can be stressful, it can be hard um, on the family life. Yeah. So those are some of the, some of the yeah. factors I'd, no, I'd think about. Yeah, no, this is, this is very helpful. Thank you so much, Arslan. This was amazing. I actually had more questions, but uh, I think we've had a very nice, comprehensive discussion. So thank you so much for your time. Is there... Any other advice you'd like to share with anyone, let's say, who is in the beginning of their careers, is potentially interested in doing what you're doing? How would you recommend they start? Well, I, I, mean, I would I would recommend, you know, if you're passionate about something, you know, try to stick with it. Um, you know, write articles. Um, make sure you are actively building a network and engaging with people. Those relationships are so important. Um, for free for your career development and, and for career opportunities um, and and try to you know remain engaged you know there are many ways uh, and, and being flexible as well there are many ways of getting involved in, in the work um, not all doors are going to be open you know when I when I came out of law school I applied um, to different jobs in government and I didn't get them um, but that wasn't the end of my efforts, right? You know, you got to keep applying, you got to keep trying, you got to keep working and engaging. And sometimes at some point, hopefully you'll get a a breakthrough in a place where, um, you know, you really want to be at that moment or you think will be a good stepping stone for you. And so you got to be willing to take those opportunities and, you know, not afraid to apply to something and and not get it and not be discouraged Um, because sometimes it takes some time. Yeah. Uh, I know people, for example, so, I mean, just my legal background, I know people that one of the, one of the highly sought after jobs, uh, in, in the legal profession for people who are interested in international law is working at the state department's legal advisor's office. Hmm. And, you know, oftentimes people have to apply to that office multiple times before they even get an interview. Um, so, you know, keep trying, uh, keep trying to build up your expertise and, um, and, and, and write uh, as well. That can also be very uh, useful for your own professional development. Yep. All right. Thank you so much, Arsene. I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope you have a relaxing rest of the day before you are able to break your fast. So uh, thank you again. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much, Sonali. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Arsalan on working as the U.S. Special Envoy to the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. I really hope that you enjoyed today's discussion. And of course, if you have any questions at all for Arsalan or for me, you can email us at hello at learneducatediscover.com. You can also tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at LED underscore curator. Or you can like us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover. Of course, if you enjoy listening to our podcast, if you find it helpful, you can subscribe to the show. You can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Simply search for Learn, Educate, Discover and you'll find us. And of course, while you're at it, please leave us a review. It honestly, honestly means a lot. You can find all of our past episodes and show notes from past episodes on our website. Our website is at www.learneducatediscover.com. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for your time and for listening. And until the next one, adios.